Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. Many of y'all know that I'm really passionate about non-toxic products, and I'm super mindful of the products that we bring into our home. I actually am not a big makeup wearer, and part of that is because I've had a really hard time finding non-toxic makeup products that actually work and that I actually like until I found Araza Beauty. Araza Beauty is an amazing organic natural paleo makeup makeup company. A lot of their um, products are made from real food ingredients, and you can pronounce most of the ingredients. I love their all-in-one coconut cream foundation. It offers a lot of coverage, actually more coverage than I'm typically used to um, because I don't really like the way makeup feels on my face, but it's so comfortable. I don't feel it on my face, and it looks amazing. I also love their mango cream color pot for just a little bit of color on my cheeks. Everything is so creamy and makes your skin look so dewy and healthy. You can save 15% off your first order when you use the code TAYLOR. So go to arazabeauty.com, that's A-R-A-Z-A beauty.com, and use the code TAYLOR to save 15% on your first order. Hi, everyone. Welcome. I have the pleasure today of having Hallie Bulkin join me. We're going to be talking more about oral ties, um, but we're also going to be talking about how airway and SIDS could possibly be connected. So I'm super excited for this conversation. We're going to dive into this idea of um, tummy sleep being safer for some infants. And I've touched on this a little bit on my Instagram account, but I get questions about this all the time. So I'm excited for Hallie to share the knowledge that she has with you. Hallie Bulkin is a feeding specialist, certified oral facial myologist, speech language pathologist, and business coach. Hallie is the founder and director of Little Sprout Therapy and Metro Mayo, a pediatric practice providing virtual in-home and in-school feeding therapy, oral facial myofunctional therapy, speech language therapy, and occupational therapy across multiple states. Hallie specializes in treating infants, toddlers, and children with tethered oral tissues, also called TOTS pediatric feeding disorders, and oral facial myofunctional disorders. Hallie has a passion for sharing knowledge with colleagues in the pediatric feeding and oral facial myofunctional therapy spaces. She is the founder of the Untethered podcast, where the goal is to bring information on myo, tots, airway, and pediatric feeding to the masses. She's also the founder of Feed the Peds, a comprehensive 12-week course on the foundations of pediatric feeding and swallowing, the myo method, an intro to myofunctional therapy course, and the myo membership, a monthly CEU opportunity where members learn from experts in the field, receive research reviews, participate in a virtual myo study club, and even get a dose of business training and marketing materials. When Hallie's not working in or on her business, she's hanging in sunny Boca Raton, Florida with her family. She and her husband, Vlad, have two daughters, Lily, age six, and Mia, age three, and their fur baby, Kobe, age eight. Hi, Hallie. Thanks so much for joining me today. Could you just briefly introduce yourself and tell us how you got into this space of working with babies with tethered oral tissues? Absolutely. So first of all, thank you for having me um, from one podcaster to another. I always love being on another podcast. I am Hallie Balkan. I'm a speech language pathologist, uh, oral facial myologist, feeding specialist. And um, it's kind of funny because I got thrown into this space. I was working with children after graduate school who were more lower functioning, like feeding kiddos. And I really knew nothing about tethered oral tissues. I knew nothing about myo and mouth breathing, nothing at all. And um, just really got thrown into it with working in the schools actually, um, where I saw older kids who had issues, but they wouldn't let me treat those. So I was only allowed to work with like the 
the, you know, quote unquote, lower functioning kiddos who are wheelchair bound and not mobile, a lot of cerebral palsy cases, and they had their own nurses with them. And it really threw me into going like, okay, I feel like this is like med really medically complex and I'm a little bit fearful of working with these kids. So I kind of threw myself immediately just into a lot of continuing ed in the feeding space ended up working with a lot of kiddos on the spectrum, um, you know, people with autism and saw a lot of patterns and a lot of different types of patterns for food preferences and oral motor patterns. And that threw me even deeper in. And then I had my own kids and that really threw me into like working with infants and the tethered oral tissue space and the Mayo world, because my own babies were tied and I suffered through 13 months of very painful breastfeeding. Long story short, first one was tied, wasn't diagnosed till 24 months, wasn't addressed until then. Uh, second baby had her ties released at five days of, of life and uh, completely different journeys. And so, you know, I always, I joke, although it's not so much a joke, but I'm like, I'm the mom of the babies who are tied. I'm the professional working with these mamas and babies. And I'm also the patient who was a horrible infant breastfeeding <laughs> breastfeeder who just was unsuccessful, ended up being on a bottle awful, like all the symptoms and didn't have my tongue tie dress until I was in my thirties after having my, my first daughter's tie, actually both my kids' ties released. So yeah, it's uh that was definitely my, my long journey into this space, but it's been really interesting to see how it's kind of evolved over time. Yeah. And isn't that so interesting? I have found that too. I mean, right now, like I think about what I'm doing in terms of infant sleep and education, and I would have never have gotten into this world if I, if I wasn't a mom and if I didn't have babies with these significant sleep challenges and tongue ties and all of this. And so, isn't it so interesting how being a parent changes you so much and not only changes you, but changes your passions and your career, um, motivations and, and, and things that you want to focus on. So totally. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I would have worked with the infant feeding population if I hadn't had a baby who, who struggled, yeah. Yeah. it really took me from working with the toddlers to throwing me into like, you know, birth to 12 months of age as like one of my most favorite populations to work with, because we can make so much, we can affect so much change when they're that little. So it's really yeah. fun, but yes, awesome. all, all due to my kiddos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a blessing in disguise in yes. a way, yes. cause you, and you really understand. So you understand what the parents, the families that you're working with are going through too, um, which I think is huge when working with, with this kind of issue and working with families so closely. Yes, I agree. So we do have a podcast episode from last season. So season two with Elizabeth Morell. Um, and she went into depth about what tethered oral tissues are and what symptoms to look out for and how they can impact different things like, like infant feeding and sleep um, and all of this. So I do highly recommend if you're listening now and you haven't listened to that podcast, go back and listen to that as well, because there's tons of great information in there. But Hallie, while you're here with us, before we kind of get into the other topic we're talking about today, can you just give us kind of a brief overview, a summary of what tethered oral tissues are, um, how they impact infant feeding and what symptoms parents would often see with a baby who has TOTS? Yeah. So I always like to explain it this way. TOTS, right? Tethered oral tissues can be, we have seven different areas that we're typically talking about. We've got one frenulum under the tongue. We've got upper and lower lip, um, frenula. And then we have also four buckle or cheek frenula and any of these areas could potentially be quote unquote tied the way we determine whether that tissue, whether it appears tight or not, is not always the determining factor as to whether or not it needs to be released. We look at function, right? So long story short, if there's a functional impact, if there are symptoms present, then it appears to be a tie, then we refer onward. We do the proper therapy, you know, pre-op, post-op prep and everything. And we may have a tongue tie release um, done, especially if it's impacting feeding, but it can also impact things beyond feeding. And I know we're going to talk about this a bit later in the episode. Um, it can impact our, how we're breathing. It can impact our sleep. And so I'll save that for later. Um, uh, but just a little plug for that, because I think that, you know, it's great that we have so much recognition towards ties and their impact on feeding. But I think a lot of parents come to me and they say, well, my baby's feeding. Okay. Like, do I need to be worried? And my first question is, is always, well, what does your baby's mouth look like? Is it open or closed right now? And that it, lends itself to a whole nother conversation. Um, in terms of infant feeding, since you have had somebody on here before, maybe what I'll do is just run through like some of the most common infant 
tongue and lip tie symptoms real fast. I won't go into describing them. I'll just list them out. And then we can talk more about how they actually impact swallowing. Um, because that might be something that, you know, a little bit more of an in-depth conversation on, you know, how a tongue tie might impact it versus a lip tie versus those, those cheek ties. So, um, and stop me if you have any questions as I go along. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, this sounds great. So general symptoms of tongue ties for our infants. Um, and I'm really focused more on like the tongue and lip here, but aerophasia. So swallowing too much air is very common reflux, you know, quote unquote reflux. They may spit up a lot, maybe gassy, colicky, fussy, you know, we may see hip, see hiccuping, um, latch issues, shallow latch popping off the breast bottle pacifier, maybe not holding a pacifier. Well, um, anterior milk loss, gumming or chewing nipples, whether it's breast or bottle, um, penetration and aspiration can be, uh, an issue definitely at more risk, um, poor weight gain, which we always say is never the determining factor of anything, but it is one important piece of the puzzle to definitely, you know, look at, um, the baby may make clicking sounds, smacking noises while eating. There may be excessive drooling when not feeding. Um, but they again can have that anterior milk loss or loss out the corners of their lips that we commonly see, uh, if they can't get that lip seal, uh, gagging, choking on milk, possibly popping off the nipple to gasp for air, um, which, you know, they could be having a hard time coordinating that suck, swallow, breathe pattern. Um, there may be combative behaviors. So these kiddos tend to be at risk for feeding aversions. And so we really need to pay attention to that. Um, they may have lip or sucking blisters. They may have, uh, or they may fatigue really easily. So they will fall asleep quickly at rest. Um, which also then they tend to wake more often to feed like every one to two hours, like my first daughter did. Um, and then, then, airway. So airway is a big one. We may see snoring, noisy breathing. I like to add noisy breathing because it's not just snoring. That's a concern. If you can hear the baby breathing, we need to assess airway, um, congestion, mouth breathing. So that's just, you know, a real quick list of the most common symptoms, um, that we see in infants. Uh, and then I don't know if you have any questions or anything, or if you want me to just kind of jump mm -hmm. into. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, awesome. go for it. Okay. And this is something that I actually teach in one of my courses. So, um, it's something I'm really super passionate about because I think that there is a major lack of education, even for professionals in this space, when it comes to how these tight tissues, right. Fascia, uh, how it impacts the basic needs of, you know, breathing and eating. If we can't breathe and we can't feed, we're in trouble. Those are our two basic like, mm -hmm. needs, you know? Um, so anyways, so if we're talking about breastfeeding, right, I always tell people just because others dismiss it doesn't mean it's not there. And I always like to put that disclaimer in there because oftentimes mamas will recognize something's off. Something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't seem right. Something about my gut tells me something is off here. And as a parent, it's not your job to know what's off. It's your job just to know something is off and then to seek help. Unfortunately, so many people turn you away. So I say advocate, 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 um, as much as you can like be your own. I had one, um, guest one time who said, be unapologetically yourself and advocate as much as you need to until you get the answers and the help that you're seeking. Um, and I just absolutely love that because it's really tricky sometimes to find people who get this. So, yeah. um, so our focus right now is going to be more on like what we call the oral prep or oral phase of the swallow, which is what happens when the milk enters the mouth up until the point of the swallow itself being triggered. Um, because if the tongue is restricted, right? So we're talking about the tongue tie specifically as it impacts swallowing, it's generally tied to the floor of the mouth, right? So it has trouble elevating or raising up to the, the hard palate or the roof of our mouth. So we can't achieve this, what we call like tongue to spot where the tip of the tongue goes up and touches behind where the future teeth will grow in. Um, it can't suction. It can't create the proper seal or other tongue or lingual movements that are needed to basically initiate the swallow. Um, so what happens here is it slows down the flow of the milk 
that's pulled from the breast or the bottle nipple. And that's actually a safety mechanism. Um, we tend to see, especially later on, like a munch pattern of chewing develop. So a lot of these kiddos will develop this like up and down pattern of chewing, which is where babies start, but then they don't develop into a more circular or rotary type of chew down the line. Um, and this happens because the tongue can't move food from one set side of the teeth to the other, from one set of molars to the other. So it, it's just the tongue and the baby just basically learn, oh, hey, I can just go up and down to break up my food, but nothing beyond that develops. Um, we see a lot of like single-sided chewing in our kiddos when solids are introduced that stays. So they tend to become more overdeveloped on one side of their face versus the other from a muscular standpoint. Um, a lot of these kiddos will take really large bites of food and overstuff. And a lot of, you know, professionals even say, oh, it's a sensory thing. They just can't tell that they have too much in their mouth. I actually think it's because they need more in order to, it seems counterintuitive, but I think they need more food in there to better manage it. Otherwise they, it just falls all over the place. But if they have more in there, then the whole mouth can just munch up and down. The tongue can smash, the teeth can smash. I don't know why, but it seems to be really common. Um, sometimes we have food get trapped, right? In the lateral sulci and there's pocketing, there's restricted tongue movements. So we'll see kids sometimes use their fingers to pull food out of the side. So that's definitely something to look for. And then we see a lot of what we call tongue dumping. So instead of the tongue moving nicely, like on a, um, one plane where just the tongue just kind of shifts to the left or to the right, we actually see the tongue kind of like a dump truck lift up on the side, the side lifts up and dumps the food over to the molars or to the back teeth to help get the food over to one side for chewing. Um, that's also very common in a lot of toddlers who are tied. Tongue thrusting, that's a big one. So we tend to see the tongue thrust forward or tongue come forward to, we say, greet the cup, whether it's a straw or an open cup or a bottle, you know, on a bottle with a baby when they're younger, we want that tongue to come forward to the lip. We want, that's part of the pattern. But when we introduce solids, that tongue is actually supposed to retract. It's supposed to go back in the mouth and the tongue tie often forces it to come forward. So we have those tongues, the tongue coming forward for utensils, you know, water cups, et cetera. Um, and then we also see the tongue come forward for the actual swallow itself because we have to create negative pressure. And so what should happen is our tongue should go up to the top of the mouth, seal off basically the tongue up against the, the roof of the mouth or the hard palate. It should create the seal and that allows us to swallow. When we when that's not functional, because oftentimes the tongue tie may be in place or other types of oral dysfunction, the tongue stays low, it goes forward, and then it plugs either between the teeth, the gums, or the lips in order to seal off the mouth and, and initiate that swallow. So it's, it's a big problem. It, there's a lot, obviously, that you can see that goes like awry if the tongue is tied. Um, we can go into the lips next. The lips are a little bit less involved. I wanted to spend a little bit more on the tongue because I think the tongue ties are such a big conversation. But I think the biggest thing to know about the lips are if if there's a restricted lip, right? If the, the frenulum is too tight there and they have a shallow latch, you know, we know from the symptoms that I listed out before. And if you go listen to that prior episode that you had mentioned, you know, hopefully she went into a lot of like what happens when there is a shallow latch. Um, aerophagia, we're going to swallow extra air, baby's going to be uncomfortable, we're going to get colic, gassy, etc. right? So, you know, babies are not going to work for a deep latch if it's uncomfortable either. Sometimes it hurts because there's tissue being pulled. So it's not the passive least resistance, right? They're going to go with the passive least resistance and that is, that's compensatory. Now we're working with compensations and, you know, the snowball begins. Um, that will also in turn reflect, restrict the flow of milk, right? And so it demands less from mom that can impact supply. I'm not an IBCLC or anything. I won't go into all of that, but you know, it's definitely something to be aware of. Um, I see a lot of moms who are using nipple shields and they're really meant to be temporary, you know, 
devices, if you will. But a lot of these moms have been giving, give, have been given a nipple shield as a permanent solution. And right. that breaks my heart because it's not ideal for, um, long-term oral development for the baby. So we really need to be looking at why do we need this, this, you know, nipple shield? Mm-hmm. Is there a lip tie? Is there a tongue tie? What's going on? Um, what else can I tell you that we haven't already mentioned, uh, in older kiddos, uh, you know, and when I say older kiddos, I mean like six months, <laughs> like the kiddos that are now sitting up <laughs> once they're like sitting up and starting to crawl, like our old, I should say our, our, uh, older infants. Um, once we're beyond just, you know, rolling and, and laying, um, without assistance, sitting out without assistance, we're not sitting on our own. Now we've got gravity that's working in a bit of a different way, right? Obviously in tummy time, we'll see this too in younger infants, but we tend to see a lot more drooling. So these kiddos who have open mouth postures because their lips might be tense or, you know, it, they might be tied, they might not be, but we'll see just drool escaping the mouth and dripping down the chin and soaking bibs, soaking shirts. I'm not talking about like a little bit of drool that you might see that's typical, you know, whether they're teething or they have a little congestion or whatever. I'm talking about like drool that soaks the shirt and the bib. And, you know, parents tell me they're changing out bibs like every couple hours because it's soaked um, with saliva that, that tells us something, something larger is going on. Um, what else? What else can I tell you? It's definitely harder to drink from a straw or an open cup. My own daughter struggled with this. She could drink from a straw pretty well, but she could not figure out at 24 months how to drink from an open cup because she had both a lip and a tongue tie. And we actually treated the tongue tie. Um, we did not address the lip tie at that time. And from a release standpoint, and I was able to then teach her how to drink from an open cup, but it was like with both of those tethered tissues in place, it, it was just not happening. She would literally dump the cup of water on herself. Um, and she was a pretty advanced kid otherwise. So I was like, something is up here, mm-hmm. uh, but it's definitely overall harder to achieve a closed mouth posture at rest. And when you're swallowing and we need that, and that's going to lend its, it land itself nicely to our, our, you know, upcoming conversation on airway. So I'll, I'll leave that for that. Um, but one of the other big things I see too, is our nose, we're supposed to breathe through our nose and eat through our mouth. Right. So if, you know, our nose is not our breathing device, if we're breathing through our mouth, then we're not filtering, softening, um, you know, out the air. And if we don't filter that air, we have foreign particles entering through our mouth. So now we've got a lot of kiddos who basically have all these foreign particles entering through their mouth. Sometimes we start to see enlarged tonsils and flame tissues and other ways they get sick more frequently because of that bacteria entering their mouth. They're more likely to have their hands going in their mouth. If their mouth is open versus, you know, children Mm -hmm. who are not thumb sucking or who don't have an open mouth posture. So it's really important to just be familiar with the conversation of nasal breathing and why it's so important. And then, you know, kind of the harms of, of mouth breathing really, especially for our our littlest ones. And also just to add to that, one of the issues with mouth breathing too, is that it increases the risk of cavities. And here we have so many dentists telling parents that the breast milk, the breastfeeding at night is the cause of the cavities. And they're not even addressing one of the potential true causes, which is the mouth breathing. So it's really, really frustrating. Yeah. 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 I'm with you on that. I just was reading something about that. Um, because I was looking up some articles actually for our conversation today. I was like, I want to see like what, if there's any new research that I'm not privy to yet. And I just, (laughs) you know, you start clicking around different websites and you see things pop up and I'm like, oh, why is this the first information available to people who go to Google? And I was going through like Google scholar even, and it was talking about this, about dental caries and breast milk and, I was like, no, just, just no, this is, mm-hmm. this is not what's causing those dental caries, those yeah. cavities. It's definitely not the breast milk, but oh, yeah, it's, it's so a, frustrating. Um, I really want to get into talking about the airway stuff, but I also just want to say, you already mentioned this, um, but just to emphasize, it's not just about feeding because you can have a baby who has no feeding issues, or you can have a baby that you formula fed them from the get-go or bottle fed them from the get-go. And so you're maybe not noticing as many of those issues. My daughter, um, had no, we had no breastfeeding issues aside from food intolerances, but with the actual latch, we had no breastfeeding issues. I never like tongue ties, lip ties were not on my radar. I didn't know they were a thing at that point. And she does have a small, a small tongue tie. It's not causing her, um, we've, we've had it addressed or assessed and 
you know, the dentist is kind of like, eh, it could go either way. I'm not sure if she really needs it, but she is mouth breathing. And so mm. that is a concern. I'm, you know, we're getting her into myofunctional therapy and all of that, but just all of that goes to say, like, she's doing really well. She did really well breastfeeding. She really hasn't had any issues with solids, but there is still that mouth breathing piece. And so figuring out what is causing the mouth breathing. Is it the tongue? Is it something else? It's still so important. And it's so, it's so complicated. And like you touched on earlier, it's so hard to get really good support from people who know what they're talking about, because it's also complicated and everything's kind of like, it feels like it's all interconnected and it's really hard to figure out what is causing what and what needs to be addressed, especially with a toddler who may not follow instructions very well anyways, and may not be able to do the exercises. So I guess I just say that to say, you know, I have, I have compassion and empathy for anybody dealing with this stuff because it's really tough. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, it's, it's complex and we really try to make it simple. And it appears simple. I think when you follow certain social media accounts and we just kind of put out information, but the amount of education and knowledge and continued studying that we do and, and, you know, case reviewing, because no two cases are the same. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, we might have like an evaluation template and a checklist that we go through and everything as we're gathering information, but that's almost just like, you know, like an artist puts all their colors on like one little uh, palette and then they start mixing and start seeing how things work together and to Mm -hmm. get to like the final, you know, piece of art. It's, It's almost like this like scientific, like piece of art where we're trying to like piece together all the different little colors and little pieces of like the past medical history and what's presenting now. And then, you know, we have to look at the muscles and we have to understand this is, and this is my, my pet peeve about like some of these industries and people who teach in general is that people teach courses, but they don't go back to one, what typical development is and what it should be. So how do we know when things are not typical? right? Right. And then two, they don't, they don't teach muscle and like, like anatomy and physiology and the way that it actually applies to the patient sitting in front of you and the issue at hand, and then how we treat that issue at hand. And so that's where like, I've gotten really deep in like my courses. I really try to focus on this because I'm like, this is a big missing piece of the puzzle. Like people leave courses going like, okay, that was really great information, but I have no clue how to apply this in assessment and treatment. And I'm like, enough of this. Like Mm -hmm. you're spending all this money. You're the professionals who are supposed to know. No wonder parents can't find somebody to help them. I know. So yeah, I mean, it's critical. And then the best, I will tell you the best professionals are the ones who engage in like highly focused types of continuing education in their area of expertise. And they don't try to just do it all because we can't do it all. My field is so vast that if I tried to do it all, I would be like a chicken, like running around with my head cut off. Like it's just, it's not possible. So you know, that's really where like focusing in on the pediatric feeding side of it. And then the, like for birth to three or four, and then the myo side of it from four plus, it really lends itself like nicely to this. So I always tell people, like, if you're looking for somebody, look at some, like for that therapist who has the myo, the tots, and you know, if they're an SLP or OT feeding experience. And then if you're working with infants, you know, if you can find somebody with that and who has lactation credentials, like that is the, we call that the unicorn. So that is the unicorn in this space. Um, But yeah, and I know we want to jump into talking about the airway stuff. I want to, since I mentioned, I would talk about the buckles, the the cheek ties too. This is real quick. They're always forgotten. I don't want to forget them. Um, They can impact like one of four things. So usually we see like in nursing, like nipple stabilization is really hard for the baby. Um, we see cheek activation with like solid feeding and chewing is impacted. Uh, facial and oral tension results from buckle ties sometimes. And sometimes it's like, you can release it, but then it, it just returns really quickly and you it doesn't, the work you're doing isn't holding. Um, and then in older children and adults, then we get into like gum recession and more of like the dental concerns, oral health concerns. So, you know, it's lack of research is thought to be the result of buckle ties, like being present along with lip and tongue ties. It's kind of hard to know if like releasing them is beneficial or not, because oftentimes they're done along with these other ties and not usually just the solely by themselves. Um, so some providers might say, well, let's try the lip and or tongue first. And then we'll return, you know, then we can go back and do the buckles if we feel like they're still impacting something. And sometimes they make, it's completely night and day difference, but you know, I always say, let's not let just be like happy releasers. And I'm obviously not a release provider, but like, I would prefer for my own child, not to have like seven areas released all at once. I'd rather 
say like less is more. Let's see what we can do in therapy as well. And then if we need to go back, we can always go back. So um, I always like to pop those buckles in there because those cheek restrictions, I think are definitely ignored. And we have four of them that it could possibly be commonly impacting us. Um, so it's definitely worth noting. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Let's move into the airway conversation. And so what I really wanted to talk to you about was this idea of, of, um, airway issues and potential correlation with SIDS. Mm-hmm. So can you just, yeah, share with us your, your insight and your, your knowledge? Yes. So I will tell you, if you go to the research, right, you're going to see a mix. You're going to see people talking about, yes, there is an absolute connection between airway issues and SIDS. And then you're going to see other people saying yes, but there, you know, nobody has actually done a study that proves something like sleep apnea is a risk factor for SIDS. And so thus sleep apnea still is not often listed as a risk factor for SIDS, which makes absolutely no sense. Um, but because they say it's like sudden infant death syndrome and they usually don't know the cause they've almost used that as an excuse or a reason as, as to why not like not to include sleep apnea because they're like, well, we, if we know the sleep apnea is present and the parents could potentially be, you know, and the team can prevent it, then this isn't like a SIDS case. Yeah. It's a sleep apnea case. And I'm like, that's just dumb. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. I just, I'm like, can we, can we listen to ourselves and what we're saying? Like, we're not going to include it as a risk factor because we possibly know if the diagnosis is present, but like, it just doesn't make, yeah. it blows my mind. It blows my mind. But they're also um, not then like <laughs> categorizing it as a sleep apnea death. It would still be a SIDS death. Right. Like that doesn't make any sense. It's yeah. I mean, and I guess because don't in this area. So, right. And like some people, right. So there's SIDS and then there's also like the sudden, sometimes they have SUID, like it's sudden unexpected infant. I'm like, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. fine. Maybe you don't categorize it as SUID, but maybe it's SIDS. Like what? how specific do we need to get? Right. Whatever. So I went and I looked and I was, um, I was kind of picking apart some of the different articles that were out there and I just figured it would be helpful to maybe bring one or two into the conversation. Um, Tonkin et al. did a review of the anatomy of the upper airway in early infancy and its possible relevance to SIDS. And this was back in 2002. Um, And I thought it was interesting because they basically noted that despite the back to sleep campaign, that there, that it's likely that there's an increasing proportion of cases of SIDS related to obstruction or limitation of upper airway size leading to sleep hypoxia or asphyxia. And what does this all mean? Like fancy terminology. So like, if you're a parent and you're like, what the heck is, <laughs> is that? Mm-hmm. What are you telling me? So when you look at some sources, they're going to say, oh, well, you know, due to the back to sleep campaign, there's been like a big reduction in SIDS cases. Okay. Well, are we looking at babies with sleep apnea then, or are we not? Because if you've listened to what I said before, basically not including those babies with potential sleep apnea in our SIDS cases. So how accurate is this data that we're reporting? Because if these babies are potentially asphyxiating in their sleep, meaning they are completely losing oxygen and dying as a result because they, they can't breathe. And that's a result of their airway collapsing or because their airway might be too small. They can't get enough air. The airway collapses you know, how do we know that these kids don't have sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea? It is possible. Mm -hmm. And so maybe those numbers need to be questioned. Maybe we need to be asking what, what are the factors that are being used to determine who's, who had SIDS and who didn't have SIDS, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because what I can tell you is that when you place any human, baby, older child, adult on their back, if they have a narrow airway, and a weak airway, when you relax, everything relaxes, guess what happens? Your oropharynx, which is basically the space between your mouth and your throat, we have a soft palate, will fall into the airway and the tongue can fall into the airway. It can collapse back to the pharyngeal wall, which is the back of our throat and completely cut off oxygen and the ability to breathe between the nose and the mouth and the throat, right? So now we're, we're not talking about like, oh, well, there's some nasal obstruction at the level of like the soft palate in the back of the throat, but we can still breathe through our mouth. No, we're saying, Hey, we can't breathe through our nose or our mouth. At this point, we've completely cut off oxygen. Now, if you are older and you can flip yourself over or into another sleeping position, this may just be momentary and brief, right? Still not healthy, still not safe, but 
momentary, the body figures out a way to flip itself, you know, into another sleeping position. If the infant is old enough or capable of doing that, let's remember we have babies sleeping in like sleep sacks, Merlin suits, things that prevent them from Mm -hmm. moving. This is dangerous. Like if you don't know that your baby is 100% has a 100% patent airway that is strong enough to be on their back all night. These, I mean, I didn't use the suits because when I put my child in it and I noticed they, it was like, like they just couldn't move. I was like, there's something about this. My mommy got like, there's an alarm going off and I just can't, I can't leave my child in this. They need to be able to yeah. move. Or just Both think about the, like the snooze where they're like strapped. They're literally strapped in. I mean, it looks mm-hmm. like they're in a straight jacket. Yeah. 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 It's- they can't even move their arms. I don't think. Yeah. And there's a lot of OTs and PTs also who are not fans. Right. And now we have like, you know, we're not going to go into this whole conversation, but just something to think about these babies who have flat heads, right. Because they're in this one sleep position and they're not learning to sleep on their bellies or they don't have the ability to turn their neck one way or the other, which by the way, if you're tied, you may also have torticollis and a preferred side, which can also lend to head flattening and other issues. But, you know, it's, I find it very interesting because the, Well, the other thing that they said, they said this type of problem might be anticipated by evaluation and investigation of infants with signs or a clinical history consistent with possible upper respiratory tract compromise, including micronathia. And so what I think is really interesting and important here is it, this talks to us a little bit about, you know, about bone, right? Micronathia. So, and I'm not a dentist, I'm not in the business of you know, moving bone or diagnosing micronathia or anything like that. But I think that we need to understand what it is because it's a term that means that our lower jaw is smaller than normal. And if our jaw is smaller than normal, so in, in some babies, it may just appear as like a minimally retruded jaw, meaning the lower jaw sits a little bit further back. Well, if your jaw sits a little bit further back, then guess what? You have a smaller airway and guess what? Now you're at risk for breathing issues and putting a baby on their back when they have this could be dangerous. We don't know if it's safe or not. And so, you know, I don't love the whole back to sleep campaign. And I was very grateful that both of my tongue tied babies who probably were throwing themselves into a healthier airway position were tummy sleepers, like very early on more like before they were flipping themselves, like for tummy time and crawling, they were flipping themselves probably by like six weeks of age. They flipped themselves onto their bellies when they were sleeping. And I was like, holy cow. And I would put them back on their back. Cause you know, as a new mom, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And then they would yeah. flip themselves over again. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to fight it because if something is telling this baby, they need to be in that position. I'm just going to, I'm going to let it go. It made me nervous as heck, but I was like, mm-hmm. we're going to roll with it. We're just going to see what happens. Um, and then my, my oldest daughter, who's now six and a half also would sleep, not just on her tummy, but in the tripod position. And the tripod position is where you have your bottom up in the air and your head. It's like your arms are usually crossed out in front of you. Sometimes they might be by the side, like long, you know, long ways by the side. Um, but the bottom is in the air with the knees tucked under and the head is either flat on the arms or flat on, on the mattress, um, or sleeping surface. And both of my kids did this, but more so my first one. And I later learned that my baby was basically putting herself in a position that opened her airway more because she had that protruded mandible, a tongue, a tongue and lip tie, you know, all, all the things. So it's, it's very interesting because typical babies will not flip themselves over for belly sleeping, usually until about four to six months of age. And, you know, some might start as early as three months. Um, but if you've got babies, like really young babies who are figuring out how to flip themselves, one, they're tight. My kids were both really tight. Their fascia just throughout was tight. They needed body work. They, they yeah. needed, babies should not be that tight. They should be like loosey goosey at birth. Um, and you mean, that's could, how they're rolling. Like they're rolling uh, not because they're tight. They are, like it's because right. they're so tight. Like that's yeah. not really a developmentally appropriate, like and for them to be doing at six weeks yes. old, like yeah. holding your head up. So I, I've seen these memes online that are like these, um, these pandemic babies are, are some kind of something else because they're, you know, born with like holding their head up and I'm going, no, oh, no. Yeah, I know it's like parents are no. like thinking this is like a good thing. Like your baby's reaching their milestones earlier, but no, it's actually a sign that there's something else going on and yeah. their body's tight. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I had, I had um, family members make comments like, wow, they, like, she's already holding her head up. That's amazing. This baby's so smart. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. And at the time I was like, I didn't, I didn't know with Lily, with my first one, who's six and a half now, I didn't realize six and a half years ago that that was not normal until I learned it was not normal. And then with me, I knew. And so we did things differently with her, but oh my gosh, it's, it, yeah, no, that's, and that's again, like you said, the only reason she was able to even flip herself out of that back, back sleeping position to her belly was because of how tight her fascia was. And if that doesn't prove how connected our fascia is, I always say we're connected from the tip of our tongue to the tip of our toes. Mm-hmm. I always tell people, go look up the word fascia trains, F-A-S-C-I-A, fascia, fascia trains. It's like a textbook. And there's some really cool images that show how we are, the fascia is literally connected. And then you start to go, Oh, so why does the met, like, why does the medical world treat us in silos? If we're so right. completely connected, exactly. I would like to know the answer to that too. Let me yeah. know when you find it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think we would all like to know the answer to that. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, okay. So what you're saying is that sleeping on the belly and, or tripod position opens up the airways and it, for some babies is actually safer than sleeping on their backs. Yeah. Yeah. So what do parents do with this information? I mean, how do we know if our baby has a potential airway issue? How do we know if we should be putting, like, I don't want to overwhelm parents or like Mm -hmm. scare them into thinking that they can't set their baby down, but do you have any advice for that of like, how do you know if your baby should be sleeping on their back or their belly? So first of all, if your baby's tight, right. And they're flipping themselves over onto their belly, I'm going to recommend you go have an evaluation done with a pediatric feeding specialist, um, who has training in tots and Mayo, even if you feel like feeding is going okay, I want you to contact this person for like a, a, an anatomical evaluation, right? They're going to look at the anatomy and physiology of what's going on. They're going to look at the, you know, the oral structures is the mouth open when baby's awake or asleep. That's one of the first questions I always ask parents because I have parents come to me and say, well, I, you know, I see what you're saying and I'm like, how do I know if my child has a problem? Like, right. Is that exactly what you're asking? My, the feeding is going great. Like I think feeding's okay. And I, you know, I say, okay, well then we look at airway. So is the mouth open or closed when baby is awake? Is the mouth open or closed when baby is asleep? Can you hear if your baby is breathing? Breathing should be silent. If you can hear your baby gasp for air, if you can hear your baby audibly breathe, meaning like if they sound congested, if they, um, if they're snoring, whether it's a light snore, an occasional snore, or a serious snore, these are all reasons to have an evaluation done. And the reason why I say go to like an OT or an SLP who's trained in this first and like myo, tots, airway, working with infants specifically, um, because that feeding evaluation actually dives a lot deeper. We look at, we typically, especially if we've been trained in the myo side of things, we also look at airway and do we need to refer you onward? It's really hard to find ENTs who look at this the same way that we do, despite the fact that that's their job. They, you know, and I get it. And I'm not, I don't want to throw any, any one profession under the bus because there's a lot of SLPs and OTs and other practitioners that don't look at any of this, but if we know there's something there and we know that maybe there's something, you know, we're not super concerned about the actual airway, but we're like, oh, but the mouth is open and it looks like your baby was able to keep their mouth closed when we, you know, we tried certain exercises, certain, um, we, we did some certain muscle releases, uh, you know, we worked on the baby's face and we've seen the baby relax. Attention has decreased. Now they're keeping their lips together. It appears that they can, they held their lips together for a minute before it popped back open. That's going to tell us, okay, this baby's not in like dire need of an airway evaluation immediately, because if a baby truly can't breathe through their nose and you close their lips, they're going to fight you to open their mouth back up and, or they're not going to hold that closed lip position for too long. It's going to pop open pretty quickly. So, you know, there's little things that we can look at and that we can do to help you figure out, all right, is this something that we definitely need to go to the ENT for, you know? And, or do we feel like we can address this with you here and we can work on baby's orofacial musculature and help direct their breathing, help direct where their tongue lives in their mouth. That's the other big piece of this puzzle. We always say tongue up, lips together, um, 
teeth apart doesn't apply to our early infants um, and then breathe through your nose. So if those are some of the goals that we're working towards, that's something that, you know, you can very, very easily see if your child is doing, there is, um, there are some different, you know, movements that you can do. So if your baby's sleeping and you want to push the tongue up, uh, push the lips together, and then the push the tongue up, if you take just like your finger, now make sure you don't have long nails. We say you need to have therapeutic nails, which means your nail needs to be cut as low as possible, <laughs> um, or use something else that's like rounded and smooth. And you're going to push just behind like the bony notch of the baby's chin. You can push the tongue straight up. And when you do that, it's going to actually direct their tongue right up to the palate, right up to the roof of their mouth. From there, you can move your hand away and see if they maintain that. Do they maintain that position or does their mouth just automatically pop right open, right? That's number one. Number two, if baby seems to be okay, like if, if that's, if they can't keep their mouth closed and they pop right open and you try a couple more times and they seem to not be keeping their mouth closed, do not force it. Please go have an evaluation done because your baby may have some nasal obstruction and we don't want to cause stress to the system. So if it appears that baby can hold, you know, hold that position for a little while before the lips like slowly reopen and they're not just like popping back open for like, you know, a gasp of air, then we can address that. Then we can, you can work on that at home and see, does this hold, or do we feel like we need additional help? Um, there's a little test where you can, you know, once you have that tongue up on the palate and the lips together, you can definitely pull the chin away, you know, reopen the mouth and see, does the tongue stay up on the palate, like suctioned to the top of the mouth when you slowly push the jaw down and, and open those lips. And if the tongue does, that's great. If it's minimal and it pops off, that's okay too. You can keep doing this throughout the day with your baby to train the oral muscles to exist in this position at rest, because this is the position that we want tongue up, lips together, breathing through our nose, awake and asleep. Anytime baby's not feeding, or communicating, right? Right. Like our young infants will start to smile and they'll start to coo and, you know, and then later they'll start to speak. You know, if we always say when you're not eating or speaking, the lips should be together, the tongue should be up and you should be nasal breathing. So hopefully that gives a little bit of information on, on where to start. Yeah. yeah that's really helpful. I think this is just, this can be so overwhelming for parents yes. because it almost yes. feels like this super urgent, big deal. And sometimes it is. Um, and I know too, because I have two children. I know I mentioned my daughter, but I have two children who still breathe through their mouth at times. And like my 20 month old cannot be like, I will try to work on him with clothing, his clothing, closing his mouth. And he just thinks it's a game, right? He just pops it back open. So it's like, kind of like hopeless. He won't do his exercises. So I'm like waiting. I'm like, I think it's okay. Like he can keep his mouth closed. He just doesn't. And we will get there. But he also was the Darth Vader baby. Like he's, he sounded like Darth Vader, um, as an infant when he was breathing and he got his tongue ties and his lip ties released. So that's just goes to say, and he had cranial sacral therapy and all, all kinds of things. So that just goes to show that it's not just about the release, the yes. release addresses yes. the anatomy, but it doesn't address the function. Yeah. And it, that's oh, just one, one piece of the puzzle yeah, always. Yeah. 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 And sometimes it is still a long road towards rehabbing and recovery after that release. Um, and I think we just need to maybe put a disclaimer here that yes. we are just sharing information. We are not telling you to never put your baby on their back. We are not telling you that babies shouldn't sleep on their back. I think ultimately like it's important for parents to know this information. Um, but we're also not saying that you shouldn't do certain things or that you should do other things. We can't tell you that because we don't know your child. We don't know your family and your, your situation. So, yeah. um, yeah, I have had quite a few clients whose babies, um, and these were mostly like one-on-one -on -one consults kind of thing where they just scheduled a quick call with me to chat about some things. And I immediately recognized these are big red flags. Their baby is only sleeping on their belly. Um, they are mouth breathing, et cetera. And I have had, I remember one in particular who wrote me after because I referred her to get this assessed. And she said, I think she saw an OT um, and she said that the OT and whoever else she worked with, she worked with a couple of providers said that her baby's airway was so impacted that it was dangerous for her to sleep on her back. And, um, you know, I remember her telling me, it just kind of makes me feel like almost sick, like knowing that if we hadn't talked to you and gotten this addressed, who knows what could have happened. Yeah. Um, I just wish that pediatricians had this information because they're usually the first point of contact and they could make a lot of difference with this information. 
Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, and this is why I've dedicated like an entire module to just tots in my course. And then also to myo because in OMDs or facial myofunctional disorders, which is basically what we're talking about right now, because it's not taught. It's not taught to SLPs. It's not taught to OTs. It's not taught to PTs. It's not taught to anybody who's not basically seeking this information out after postgraduate studies. Like you have to seek it out. And it's the scariest thing because this is a real problem. Like we have a lot of babies that are dealing with this. And, you know, if we can get in there early on and, and, and advocate for these babies and educate, it doesn't always have to be a big issue. The problem is that things start to snowball over time. And then you get into toddlerhood where it becomes really tricky sometimes to work with that population. And Mm -hmm. then you get into, you know, it's, they're older and they they're busy after school and, oh, we have sports and we have this and we have that. And it's hard to get them to do their homework. And then we have adults who are busy, but now falling apart. And so, you know, it's, it it actually snowballs into an issue and it's definitely worth addressing. And it's that, you know, it's one of those things where I always say, I never want, I never use scare tactics to get a parent to do anything. We only educate, right? And it's not meant to cause fear. This is not meant to, you know, give you another thing on your list of things that are going to make you anxious as a new parent. Because I think if anybody had said this to me when my child was, uh, you know, going through these things, I probably would have been like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like, really? Like another thing I have to deal with? Um, Not to say that I wouldn't have treated it, but I would have been like, oh my gosh, like, we have so much to handle as moms, especially new moms and moms of, you know, young infants, and then throw in the mix feeding struggles or sleep struggles. And, you know, sleep struggles are a big problem for these babies who struggle to feed and, or who mouth breathe because they don't sleep the same way as their, the other babies who don't have these issues. They're not getting as good of a quality of sleep if they're mouth breathing when they sleep. Plus they're also waking more frequently to feed oftentimes, especially if they're tied or they have other oral dysfunction because they're not getting enough during their feeds when they're awake. And you know, they fatigue, they fall asleep again. It's that whole cycle. So it's a lot, it is a lot. And I want to just recognize all the moms who are dealing with this because it's a lot and nobody signed up for this. This was like, mm-hmm. this is not that blissful feeding mama journey. You know, you knew you would be sleep deprived, but you didn't know you were in for a lot of other things too. And so it is, it is tricky. Um, but there's definitely certain causes that are well documented when it comes to like upper airway obstruction. And I want to encourage parents, if you're listening to use that term, because if you go to an ENT who's dismissive and who says, oh, everything seems fine you know, I want you to say, I'm worried about upper airway obstruction, because if you say something like that, that's probably going to catch their attention very differently. If then you say, oh, my baby doesn't sleep well. My baby's really fussy and colicky and, you know, feeding is a little bit tricky and so on and so forth. So I always tell, I try to, and I try to arm providers with this verbiage too, like upper airway obstruction, upper airway resistance. Those are, that's a good term to use when when wanting to get your baby's airway checked. Um, and I'll add that one of that Tonkin article, um, they go through and talk about different, I'm not going to go through and explain everything, but I'm just going to highlight this. They talk about extrinsic and intrinsic causes of upper airway obstruction. And so what does that mean? Like, you know, extrinsically, like we can sometimes see on the face that there is obstruction based on the anatomy. And that's why it's really good to get evaluated by an OT or an SLP or somebody trained in, you know, feeding myo and tots. Um, We see neck neck flexion where the neck is already kind of coming forward. And even in babies, their neck is either flexed this way, or they, like I mentioned before, they may have some torticollis and they have this, their head is kind of tilted towards one shoulder more. These babies have tension and we can see this extrinsically, meaning we can see this on the outside of their body with our eyes. As a parent, you don't know to look for this. You're not going to see it. I didn't see a lot of this on my own children, (laughs) but you know, my colleagues did. Um, And then intrinsically uh, some causes of that upper airway obstruction that you might want to, you know, tell the NT, I've done my research. I want to rule these things out. Like, is there a change in the airway size? Is there, you know, micronathia, like I mentioned before, Um, craniofacial anatomical abnormalities. So any baby who is born with any craniofacial anomalies or anything that you're aware of already is going to be at risk for upper airway issues. And so this should be a conversation that is had immediately. Do you, when Um, you say that, do you mean like asymmetry of the face? Is that what you're referring to or? Yeah, it could be anything from, you know, 
my, well, it could be, it could be micronathia, right? Because mm-hmm. that's craniofacial. So the jaw is too small. It's sitting further back. Um, it could be a change in head size or shape. It could be clefts, cleft lip palate. You know, it could be just anything, like you said, that you can see. Oftentimes though, we're going to want to also look in the mouth because there's things that can be observed in the mouth anatomically that we're not going to readily see on the outside of the face. Um, so it's, it's a whole category of its own. Mm, Um, but you'll know if you generally know if, because the pediatrician is going to have flagged these things, or you're going to have recognized it as a parent. And now you're going to, you know, you're going to be talking to the pediatrician or other providers about this already. Just know in those cases, we want to be talking about airway as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's oftentimes ignored. Um, and then, you know, laryngomalacia is one that, you know, we hear these babies who um, have very noisy breathing and they're very difficult to feed. They have a really hard time managing airway and swallowing at the same time, the way we need to like suck, swallow, breathe. Um, but laryngomalacia is a collapse of the airway. And so this is also something that I've seen go undiagnosed in infants. Surprisingly, they land in my office. They're six months old. They've been to multiple ENTs. Different ENTs have different opinions on if it's laryngomalacia or not. And at the end of the day, it almost doesn't matter what you call it as long as we're addressing it. And as long as we are, you know, educating the parents, that's, you know, laryngomalacia is definitely a more severe case of upper airway obstruction. Um, these babies are going to struggle with a lot of different things. And it sometimes resolves when they're a couple years old. Sometimes they do need surgical intervention. Um, but I just like to put that out there because I think it's, I see that term get thrown around a lot, laryngomalacia. And it's something that, um, you know, if your baby has like a barky quality to their breathing and you can hear these sounds that just don't sound okay when they're breathing, it's more than just snoring please, please go to the ENT, like go to your, you can go to your pediatrician first if you want, but please seek out an ENT, you know, immediately. That's definitely one of those cases where it's like, you can bypass us and go straight to the ENT, but then also please make sure you get to get, go for a feeding evaluation afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Okay. So for those that want to learn more, do you have any resources? Where can we find you? Where can we learn more from you? Absolutely. So the easiest place to find me is probably on Instagram or Facebook, um, on Instagram at Hallie Bulkin. And I do have a website, HallieBulkin.com, um, that you can visit that basically will link you out to everything I have available. Um, the other great resource for parents is untetheredpodcast.com. That is my podcast. It's available on all the big, you know, podcasting platforms, but we have a lot of great information for you there as well. Amazing. Well, oh, do you have um, any tips for parents who are looking for a provider like an OT um, or SLP who are trained in all of this? Yes. So I actually have a directory um, of people who have gone through my course through Feed the Peds. And that is a 12 week, 40 hour course. Um, We're actually creating a certification for it as well that teaches SLPs and OTs specifically infant toddler feeding, but also a holistic look at it where we're including the tethered oral tissue and the myo conversation and medical complexities and things beyond what a lot of other courses do. We, we kind of, we joke, it's the grad school class that you should have gotten that nobody's getting. Mm-hmm. So it really helps to uh, make sure you get that well-rounded provider who's kind of looking at all pieces of the puzzle. Wonderful. Is that on your website? Um, so that's at pediatricfeedingtherapist.com. Okay. I'll link that in the show notes, pediatricfeedingtherapist.com. Okay. Well, Hallie, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wisdom. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Okay, guys, I have to tell you about one of my newest obsessions. So I am a working mom. I work sometimes. I work part-time. I fit in whatever I can during the day. A couple times a week, I have a few hours of childcare and I feel like I'm scrambling like a chicken with its head cut off, just trying to cram as much as I can into those couple of hours. And what that often means is that I neglect myself. I don't eat as much. I'm snacking. I'm just grabbing random things because I don't want to take time out of my childcare time to make a nourishing meal for myself. Um, And so I have discovered Daily Harvest and I'm obsessed. Daily Harvest meals, food, nourishing meals, snacks, smoothies, even ice cream, straight to your door. You stick them in the freezer and then it's super easy to prep them when you're ready. And 
what I really love about Daily Harvest and appreciate so much because I'm st- I try to be so mindful about what I put into my body and onto my body and their ingredients are so clean. They don't use a lot of preservatives and and fillers and things like that and most of their ingredients are organic, which is important to me and I really appreciate them. And they're delicious. So their smoothies are so good. One of my favorite smoothies is the mint and chocolate smoothie. So good. It tastes like mint chocolate chip ice cream. Um, Anyways, I love them. It's made my life a lot easier. It's nice to just have convenient meals on hand um, because it feels like, you know, for me, my, all of my effort goes towards prepping food for my kids. And sometimes I forget about myself. So it's nice to have those things on hand. You can try it too. And you can save $40 on your first order with the code TaylorK. Go to daily-harvest.com, use the code TaylorK, and save up to $40 on your first order. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I do. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor I hope you'll join me next time.